Got it. Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode number 74 of Confessions of a Market Maker. I'm your co-host, Ray, a.k.a. All Day Ray, a.k.a. The Low Float Goat. And I'm joined here by my chic co-host, former market maker of 20 years and current day retail trader, a man who's ran an innumerable amount of penny stock deals from Canadian mining, sponges that produce their own soap, and Halloween <laughs> costumes for your dog, a life he now repents for as he dries his tears with his Versace towels, the man with more stories than Forrest Gump, the proper villain, JJ. How's it going? Good brother. How are you today? That was, that was wow, man. You, uh, yeah, that your windup was good on that one. That was, thank nice. you. Thank you. Thank you. I felt good with that one. I'm glad that I was beautiful. beautiful. I felt good about that one. Yeah. That was like, a, that was like Reverend Al Sharpton. Man. That was beautiful. <laughs> well, you know, we're 74 episodes in, uh, you know, hopefully I'm getting, you know, I'm getting the flow down, getting the delivery. Mm-hmm. Um, and today our guest today, he's been working within the financial markets for over a decade. He's held various roles across equities, FX, and commodities markets, and he most recently worked as a quantitative analyst for a major sell-side bank, host of an educational and entertaining YouTube channel. I am talking about Sergey P. Sergey, I know I asked you for your name. I was, I, was, I felt like I was going to butcher it. Uh, Perfilia. Uh, Perfilia. Perfilia. Not a chance. <laughs> Sergey, man, I really appreciate you coming on, man. How's it, how's it going? Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here and great to be on this podcast and talking to you guys. Uh, it's going well. Uh, it's almost the end of the day uh, in the local time zone. Yeah. Um, how, how are you guys? Yo, doing great, man. Where, so so, where, so where are you at? Where are you at right now? Uh, I'm in London. Nice oh, you're in London. Sunny. Oh, yes. uh, nice. So we are five hours ahead. Yeah, yeah, five hours. It's almost time to get that nice end of day drink. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. There you go. And uh, yeah, man, uh, you know, really glad you got on, you know, like I mentioned, like Steve reached out to you. And then once we uh, I, I was really enjoying watching your YouTube channels, reading over some of your Twitter threads, uh, mm-hmm. which, you know, Thank been you. gaining a lot of a lot of traction. And, uh, you know, anything we, we talk about, um, you guys, you know, go go check out his stuff. We, there's a lot more detail than maybe we might be able to touch on a podcast. Um, but, you know, uh, as you know, the people who are watching on YouTube man, you got the ticker channel behind you you know um something you see on cnbc or you know some financial media tell us a little bit about it man where do i get one of these <laughs> yeah that's actually one of the frequently asked questions uh, i get i get a lot of responses of people who, uh, in youtube comments and on twitter just asking hey man where, where did you buy this i want one of those um unfortunately it's very difficult to get one of those uh, sort of for for home use because usually companies that produce them um they make them for offices and so sort of, you know big big spaces and they're very expensive um, mm-hmm. So I basically was forced to uh, to do do it myself, and you can buy cheaply the sort of the LED panels, which can be very easily connected together and connected to the Raspberry Pi, sort of a small personal computer, um, which is also is not very expensive. It's like forty dollars or so, uh, and then there's code on the internet that's Python code, uh, which you can put together, which drives uh, this LED panel, and then you can download the data from Yahoo Finance, and that's basically the end the end product. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well, shout out to you, man. That's a great, great setup you got. It, it looks, it looks perfect for the videos too. Um, it's a great thank setup you, you got going on there, it's man. Nice, yeah. It's nice um, when we have an update because then it's all green and it looks really good on the videos. Oh, when, yeah. when, it, when it's when it's red, it's it's really not nice. <laughs> and, and the thing is, it completely destroys the editing process because oh. if you scrub oh. during the video and you have to edit, then then the whole prices they all of them jump. And if it's if it was a green stock and then it jumps to red stock, it's it's very noticeable. Oh man, it messes up, but it's. Uh, I think the aesthetic, the aesthetic quality of it is was worth it. Um, and just just a reminder to the listeners, if you guys would like to join JJ and myself in a supportive community of traders, join us at microefutures.com. Uh, Sergey, yeah, so I just want to start off the conversation with the with the beginnings and what led you into a career in finance. Oh, that's a that's a good question. Um, so <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a good question because I I studied electrical engineering in university. Uh, which is completely non-financial. And for some reason, everyone in my, in my entire group and uh, the year above, year below, everyone wanted to get into finance, uh, <laughs> which completely was, uh, like, I, I didn't know about financial world, world before that. Like, um, I came before university, I was in Ukraine, and um, 
finance is not really a big thing in sort of Russia, Ukraine, Eastern Europe. Um, so I never found out anything about it. And then I started studying electrical engineering and everyone's talking about finance, how they all want to go work in big banks. Um, and it sort of caught on to me. I thought, okay, maybe I'll you know, give it a try as well. Why is it so popular? And basically that's how it started. I uh, had an internship uh, in sales and trading during uh, between my third and fourth year. Uh, that was 2008, uh, the glory days of the financial crisis. Um, and that's, that's essentially how it started. Um, um, it, was, it was really interesting. I guess the, most, the biggest criteria is that once you start learning about it, there's so much. And it's, again, it was, you start exploring. And even in university, I had a few financial classes as well, uh, where they talked about, among other things, options. And I thought that thing is really cool. And I started, again, exploring a bit more uh, and trying to get into the career within financial markets. Mm-hmm. Nice, nice. So, so where where did you go to uh, to college at? Where did you study? Uh, so that was in London. So that's when I moved from um, from Ukraine, from Russia to London. So that was, that was in two thousand five, and I've basically been here since then. And you've been since then. Okay, okay, awesome. And um, you know, I, you know, for, for the listeners, um, because I I know you you know describe yourself as a quant, or at least that was like the last job title you held. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, just for the listeners, could you explain the difference between a quant, a trader? Uh, and an analyst? Of course, of course. I mean, a quant in general is a very broad term. Like it mm-hmm. um, can, can really mean anything. Uh, but it's usually at the most basic level, it's the combination of somebody whose job is a combination of mathematics, software development, and trading. Uh, so it's people who try to apply mathematical side of things. So things like statistic, probability theory, uh, implement whatever um, strategies they have or whatever models in computer code and solve various financial problems within financial markets. Uh, so these problems could be either like, again, portfolio optimization or pricing of complex uh, products, uh, or again, creating trading strategies for profit. So a lot of, a lot of different things. Uh, whereas again, an analyst is also a very broad term, <laughs> which is usually referred to research analysts uh, whose job is primarily to uh, look at fundamentals of a company and maybe create some spreadsheets, create some models based on that. So it's less mathematical, less, um, certainly less engineering programming. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, and so, so how did you, uh, like, like your first, your first job title, did you start off as a, uh, a quant? How did it progress? I'm just kind of curious to how the progression went. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a, it's a bit of a story. Um, so back in the day, like when I finished university, I really wanted to go into sales. So within finance, uh, usually people go to either trading or sales. And I, mm-hmm. for some reason, I found sales to be the most attractive. It's where you, this guy, you talk to clients, you take them out for dinners and entertain them. So <laughs> I, that's, that's how I saw the sale, but that's what I think the sales yeah, people yeah, do. JJ yeah, knows <laughs> about that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, <sighs> and my first sort of permanent role after a couple of internships, my first role was within Bloomberg. Um, so I joined Bloomberg. And they have this pipeline of people if they want to become go into sales. Uh, they need to learn about markets, about the terminal, uh, and they start off on the Bloomberg help desk. So I, that was my sort of first permanent role. I was the person on the other side of the Bloomberg help desk chat. Um, okay. And I answered, I answered questions about like equity, equity derivatives markets. Um, and while doing that, I've kind of realized that I don't really want to do sales. <laughs> <laughs> uh, because... That job was, first of all, a huge exposure to clients. Like you speak to, again, buy side, sell side, everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, if you specialize in a certain area, then salespeople will take you on meetings to sort of assist them with various uh, clients' questions and so on. Um, and then you obviously have to talk to them on the phone a lot, day to day. So I thought, actually, I'm more interested in the technical side of things. And I found out about this uh, quantitative analyst role, and I thought, wow, that's, that's actually very interesting to do. It's like a combination of all these different things, which are really exciting. Uh, again, there's maths, there's programming. I did a bit of that in university. And obviously there's finance. Amazing. And I thought, okay, so how, how do I get there? Because <laughs> obviously back then I didn't know, I couldn't program. Like I had a bit of background, but I didn't know anything about, uh, like I didn't know Python or any other software development languages. Uh, and I certainly didn't know m- mathematical finance. So like the Black-Scholes theory. Oh, okay. No, no, like I've heard about, about it, but I knew only the business finance side of things. Uh, so that was back in 2014, and I made a decision to do two things. So first one, within Bloomberg, I've um, changed careers and I've moved into their engineering department, uh, where I worked as a software developer. 
Uh, And at the same time, I started a part-time degree within mathematical finance. So that took about maybe two, three years to complete. Uh Um, And by the end of that, I knew how to program. I knew very well about the Black-Scholes framework, about the mathematical finance, different topics within mathematical finance. Um, And I started applying for quant jobs. And eventually, uh, it's again a very long process, uh, but eventually I've got an offer from Goldman to join uh, them. And the last four years, I've been on the equity structure products desk. Okay. Nice. Can I can I just yeah. jump in because you just you just talked about you know getting recruited by Goldman. So I'm an old guy, <laughs> and and we're used to the, the the Goldman interview process stories. Is that still yes. true? Uh, or or can you say <laughs> what can you say before the guy shows up and and, and pokes you on I the can, shoulder? <laughs> I haven't haven't tested the limits yet. Okay, okay. Uh, but I mean, I can certainly say that it's still true. It's just that I'm laughing because um, you've mentioned that you've been recruited by Goldman. And again, if you look at my, I don't know, LinkedIn profile, it's, you know, it's a logical progression. Like the guy was a software developer, then boom, Goldman Sachs. Okay, fine. It all, it all makes sense. Um, but what's not visible behind the scenes is, is the actual process. Yeah, exactly. Um, which has been incredibly difficult because I started, I started applying for jobs and I thought that, okay, I'm, I've got everything I need. I've got the mathematical skills, the uh, software development skills. You know, I'm should should be, should be okay. Like I'm, I'm ready to go. And I haven't heard back from many banks. Wow. Uh, so it's been like a complete silence. And uh, I started applying in 2016, and again, it's been like half a year and pretty much nothing. There's been a few interviews, um, mostly phone interviews, but again, nothing. It's been very difficult to um, to get into. Uh, one of the sort of one like looking back, one big one of the biggest mistakes is that I, I didn't want to use headhunters. Uh, for some okay. reason, I thought that I can do it on my own, like applications. I can do an application. I can write a CV. Like, I don't need this third-party person, uh, which is a huge mistake, <laughs> I think, right now because they are there to help. They they know everyone uh, within the company. But anyways, um, what I started doing then is then I started sort of taking the bar a little bit lower and I started applying for graduate programs, uh, and eventually. The way I moved into Coleman was I got an offer for an internship, um, which I accepted and I started working there. The internship was for four months uh, initially, uh, which due to various reasons of me wanting to move into equity derivatives desk and a few other internal uh, issues within Goldman, uh, the internship lasted for 10 months instead. Okay. Um, but in the end, I did get a full-time offer um, cool. within the equity derivatives desk. Okay, uh, but it's been yeah, it's been a very long process, um, so to speak. And obviously, the internship it doesn't. The, I had to take like a pay cut uh, from my previous role, and it's been oh. it's it's been quite of a journey. I can imagine. How did you how did you like your experience at Goldman? Just because I, I I come from the world, you know, where I I did completely everything the opposite of what you're supposed to do. I crawled through the store sewers of the penny stock market. Mm-hmm. Uh, and work my way up, you know, to trading NASDAQ deals and things like that. But um, so I've always been curious about the corporate culture at Goldman. What was it like working there? Uh, you know, you read stories about Sidney Weinberg, you know, and he started there as a janitor and worked his way up to the CEO. And you know, just tell us a little bit for the people who always like to look inside the belly of the beast, mm-hmm. uh, what, what that culture was like, if you don't mind. Uh, I, I, uh, it's certainly a good question. And um. In general, working there is very stressful. Like it's it's a very demanding job, a very demanding environment. Mm-hmm. Um, but I guess if I had sort of one word to describe it, it probably would be um, very competitive, uh, which is a little bit strange, especially coming sort of from like I mean I only have one <laughs> one other company to compare it to, yes. uh, and my previous experiences was teams together. They work like you really work together within the different departments mm-hmm. within different teams. Um, but in Goldman, it's there's a very high internal competition okay uh, which i found a little bit strange uh, because again we're sort of one company work together we work for the same goal um uh, but usually people uh, on different desks yeah. uh, the idea is that if you spend time helping another desk you're not spending time working on your oh, own yeah, project yeah. hence you're not you know helping your own desk you're not helping yeah. your own department business unit exactly. um, so it's always a challenge to get some help from different desks when you know the project requires you to work with different teams um so i guess that's one one side of the things um yeah that's interesting i guess 
Well, I guess everyone's trying to make partner, right? So there. And that's you know, who, and then yeah, then you know. there's a yeah, yeah. Yeah. Cool. Thank you. Thank you. And people, yeah, people work really hard in Goldman. Like it's oh. it's an absolutely incredible. It's really like I think Goldman uh, is an excellent place, and in general, I probably sell side banks. It's an excellent place for people who just graduated from university. Like the first couple of years, it's it's the learning curve is really steep. You learn a lot, meet a lot of people. Uh, it's really great. Um, when you get older, I think it's. Mm. I mean, you get other priorities in life, and uh, again, in my case, for example, um, I don't mind working like hard and you know really, really putting your effort into it. Uh, but then again, when you have other priorities, like you have family and other things going on, it becomes more and more difficult to sort of put in long hours. Understood. Understood. Interesting. I want to, um, I, I really like that, you know, I mentioned um, some of like the Twitter threads and I, I really like the, you, you know, the pin tweet that you have. It's on the non-glamorous things that you should know um, mm-hmm. as working as a sell side quant. And, you know, then after, after we go through this, I want, I want to ask you the differences between a sell side quant and a buy side quant, uh, if there is differences. Um, mm-hmm. But um, I, th- I think it was like the first, uh, let me see here, I got it. Yeah, so I think it was like the first uh, thing you noted was, uh, pr- so the primary responsibility of a quant uh, is to help traders calculate prices and risks of their books correctly. Modeling or developing comes second. Correct, yes. I found that very interesting. You want, you want to just like speak to that? Sure, I'm sure. Um, so there is this term, um, KTLO, keeping the lights on, mm. uh, which is very f- popular within this sort of the software development world. Um, so companies, again, big companies like including Goldman, but Facebook, Google, uh, there is a lot of work that involves just keeping things running. Mm. So just making sure that the current systems are functioning correctly and everything's working correctly. Um, so that is the main priority. So if the current system goes down, if the current risks are wrong, for example, for the trader, uh, or the sales is trying to price a complicated deal and it doesn't work or there's an error like that's the priority number one because the business depends on that like if they can't get the deal out of the door then well what, what, what are we doing so anything extra like anything for example developing creating new models creating new tools for example that can hold if there is a burning issue that needs to be resolved like right now uh, so that's that's basically what is meant by that uh, by that tweet uh, yeah. and which in terms of workflow, it means that if you're working whatever project and something urgent comes up, I mean, you drop everything and you address that whatever risk issue or PNL issue or whatever it might be. Okay. Now, so because like I like I always imagined like your your day and you could you could tell me like maybe what like a typical day and I'm sure it obviously varies, uh, mm-hmm. you know. But um, I, I would imagine you just be there like 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 you're uh, you're modeling different strategies, you're you're back testing, etc. Like you know, but it, it seemed like as the, the thread was going on, that was almost um I don't want to say secondhand, but a lot of it was just more on pleasing maybe the higher ups or um having maybe not the best system, right? But but a system that was just just good enough, or I, I don't know, maybe you speak to it, maybe I misinterpreted it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um Deliverables are obviously very important. Like uh, the more things you can get done and released, the better better it is. Because then again, the sales are happy, the traders are happy, your yeah. management is happy, their management is happy, which is the important bit. Everyone's happy. Um, and <laughs> there's, there's a bit of conflict because in software development, you're not really ever done. There's always improvements you can do. You can always make your code more efficient, better functioning. You can always add new features. Um, so it's like it's a never ending thing. Uh, and also you get to a point where you sort of finished, but it's really raw and it still probably has a, a, you know, a bit of bugs uh, and it's inevitable. Like no matter how sort of good you are, you still inevitably you will get uh, bugs in your code. And the primary objective was to finish your project as sort of the, I guess the bare minimum. So it works, it produces what it should be, sort of get it released, done. Uh, and then focus on another project because that way you can release more projects. You can show more deliverables, which is obviously great for, for everyone. Um, but then the flip side of that is that these kind of projects, these kind of uh, systems, they still have bugs. They might not be tested extremely thoroughly. And usually something breaks, you know, a couple of weeks down the line. And then you have to troubleshoot, <laughs> troubleshoot them again, which is a bit time consuming. It takes again, it takes everyone time. And if it's something I've built and then I go on a holiday, <laughs> somebody else needs to fix it and vice versa. So it's not, it's not an ideal situation. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so, so how do you think, uh, because I'll, I'll read the next point, because you said it's not who has the best model anymore. It's about who has the best systems, uh, i.e. who can get the price faster, process more deals, automate everything yep, yeah, yeah. with so increased something- competition. Yeah. And so, yeah, so, so, so you say it's, so would you say it's kind of uh, maybe uh, flawed with the, with the approach um, that, you know, that maybe like Goldman took or maybe some of these other uh, firms are taking? Um, I guess the idea of that next uh, tweet, it was more about um, quantitative finance in general, like the classical sense of quantitative finance is that you do a lot of um, pricing of complex products, for example. There is, you build mathematical models, you build these, uh, again, both in mathematics and in sort of in code. Um, but unfortunately, there is less and less of that these days. Uh, right now, com- I mean, there are complex products, of course, um, but uh, most of the models for them to price them, they've already been built. They already exist. They're already known. Like There is nothing really new. And um, for something new to appear, there needs to be a demand for a new complex product, uh, which, <laughs> I mean, it's not, it's not really there. The products are fairly complex as it is. Uh, so you, there isn't much of that work, uh, of pure quantitative finance work. Uh, so what a lot of banks are doing right now is they're trying to increase the volume of their existing products instead of just trying to come up with a new product. Right. And that involves creating new systems which can automate this flow a little bit better, especially if we're talking about exotic products with many different features. Uh, the system needs to support all those features, like the sales, for example, because it's like an entire workflow. It's not just like price, done, trade, that's it. Uh, it's basically not just a matter of clicking a buy or sell button. Uh, but... There is a lot of documentation, for example, that goes along with uh, the product. Um, there is a whole workflow where you have to, again, price it, book it, agree the price with the trader. You know, there's a back and forth between sales and trading about it. Uh, and then when it's finally booked, uh, get a confirmation. So there's a lot, of, um, a lot of steps. So the more of that you can automate, the better it is because the more trades you can do. And ultimately, you can maybe get, give the system to a client and then have the client price whatever deal they want, click a button, and then everything else just you know, gets processed on, our, on the bank's end. So that's the ideal situation. And that is the focus for many, many, many desks right now. So trying oh. to make their products as flow as, as, as they possibly can. Yeah, oh, that's, great. that's great insight into the flow process because I'm an order flow junkie. So you know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's fascinating to... Uh, to you know, to see how it, the creation of order flow because you sit in the chair where order flow is actually created, uh, because you guys are creating the order flow that we surf. So uh, it's this is beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, thank yeah, you, thank you. yeah. No, that makes that makes a lot of sense. And uh, you know, you talk about exotic products, and you in another one of uh, the the bullet points you had in the thread was that you would argue that traders in exotic products are more quants than quants. Um, I guess I'll ask like one, what, what would you classify as an exotic product? And, and what did you mean by that? Mm-hmm, sure. So exotic products is, uh, so we're talking about derivatives, mostly options, but instead of taking sort of plain vanilla calls and puts, you go one step higher and then you start talking about the knock-ins, knock-outs, um, different binary options and so on. Uh, but then you can also structure them in the, this note, uh, which is like an investable well, almost like a bond which pays a coupon, but it oh, also right. on, top of that, on top of that, it has these various different features of you know option features where something knocks in or knocks out or gets oh, paid before okay. maturity. Uh, so these would be the exotic products uh, in in that sense. And and for example, quants that work on these exotic products again, since the focus is to trade as many of them as possible, the focus is on on creating systems to support all that flow and all that trading. Uh, it's very frequently that quants spend a lot of time programming and software developing and not as much time thinking about, again, the mathematical side of things, for example. Yeah. Uh, but traders who trade these products and who have books full of these instruments, they spend a lot of time thinking about models or how this or that parameter impacts the price or risks or why is Vega this or that. Um, so that's why I would argue that they understand these products much, much, much better than actually the quants who develop the models because the traders actually use those models on the day on the day to day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's it's, it's very interesting, and I, and I it, it makes me think like um because you know Sergey like I I come from like a, a like poker gambling background and like that was you know it's mm-hmm. you think you want to you want to go where there's maybe um things maybe aren't as figured out like you like you you know like you were talking about earlier I don't know if that's a fair comparison where you're saying like a lot of these mathematical formulas already exist it's more just about the volume now. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think that makes sense just as like an investor or someone who's looking for an edge, you go to things where maybe they're developing and developing, right. It's, it's developing. It's not, it's not figured out yet. I'm, right. I'm thinking crypto. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right. Well, and that's something I was going to ask you about. Like if you yeah. saw that, like in crypto or I don't know if you're, you dabble in the NFTs um, at all. So, so that's where you're thinking. No, no, that's, that's just an example I had in my mind when you, when you oh, said that, but uh, I'm not, I'm not really into crypto. <laughs> oh, oh you're not into it. Oh, you're not into no, it. No, oh, okay. No. All right. You're getting me excited. No. You're getting me excited. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry for getting your hopes up. I got a quick question. Up. I got a quick question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you said the, these notes, is it similar to like a convertible debenture where they, where you'll have a bunch of different things that. It's like a convertible bond. It's like a convertible bond. Okay. And just a quickly, how how liquid are these markets for these products? I mean, they're generally OTC. Okay. Um, I mean, in terms of liquidity, like it's hard to sort of put a number on that uh, okay. from my side. Cause again, I was, uh, I wasn't on the side of things where I can see we how much. See the trading. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I'm just curious. I, I, Cause I always wonder, you know, with all these structured products and all these very complex products, how, how liquid the, those markets are. Um, it's interesting. Well, the this banks, the banks who sell them, they do provide uh, two-way price, so the okay. clients can can sell and close with them. Uh, obviously, okay. there is counterparty risk that comes yes. with that. Um, you, yeah. Can you? You know, you, we keep hearing about notional derivatives, risk, and debt, uh, and and the numbers are staggering. Uh, can you explain a little bit of that? Uh, in terms of why, like, why the notionals are really big, or yeah. Like the I mean, size, of, you hear these hundreds of trillions of dollars. Yeah, it's a. If it's if it's somewhere in the media, then usually, obviously, they want to make the number as big as possible to to, to grab people's attention. Okay. Um, but in terms of derivatives, notionals sometimes can be a bit misleading uh, because it doesn't make much sense to talk about a notional. Um, for example, like if let's 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 say uh, interest rate swap. Mm-hmm. Usually, notional is just a reference value. Okay. on which the payments are based. So Got one it. party pays 2%, the other party pays 3%. The net is like 1%, and then 1% yeah. of a million is not really that much. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but you can still say it's a million, you know, the product yeah. is a 1 million size. Yeah. So notionals are a, a little bit mis- misleading in that sense. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, so Sergey, so as a quant, what, yeah. what's your relationship like with the traders? Um, good one, I hope. Um, <laughs> yeah, because this this uh, this came. Uh, so, sorry, before you go, the, yeah, this yeah. came from. Uh, shout out to British Steve. He he wanted to know this question. He's getting into billions right now. I don't know if you've seen the show mm-hmm. Billions, and so I've, I've, I've heard of it, heard of it, never. never yeah, so the, there's some good. tension sometimes between the quants and the traders. So yeah, we want to we want to hear from real life. Well, what's it what's it like? Well, for, first of all, it's been really good. Like. Um, very frequently we work on like similar projects. Um, so mm-hmm. traders, they explain to us like what exactly they want to see or what numbers they want to see or what kind of things they want to, you know, backtest or check or whatever. Uh, so far, like it's been, it's been really good working with them. Um, I think we never had problems sort of, you know, if I, probably it was more difficult working with quants and other teams than with traders. Oh, really? <laughs> I'd yeah. probably, I'd probably yeah. say that. Traders have been quite uh, approachable in that sense and they're obviously willing to help and, they, and for a reason, because they obviously know that they are, we are working to help exactly. them. Exactly. Uh, so there's a mutual benefit there. Um, and generally, the, ratio, the relationship is that, especially in that, again, that depends on different desks. So it depends what kind of desk you're on. Uh, because some desks, if it's like equity, trading, Delta One, the products isn't that complex. So the re- reliance on quants is not that significant. Whereas if you look something like structured products or even simple plain vanilla options, uh, the risks are more difficult to calculate. Like you cannot, or it cannot, you, you cannot easily calculate the risks or exposures of your big options book in your head. Like you really have to have some systems that you know completely break down your PNL in terms of delta, gamma, whatever. Um, and that's where you need quants. That's where you need people to, and not just quants, obviously software developers who will build these systems, who will give traders the visibility in terms of what their risks are, what their PNL is, and so on. Uh, some scenario analysis maybe. Um, so that's, that's where quants come in. Um, and yeah, yeah, that, that's, that's pretty much it. Okay. And, and is there, is there any difference between a sell side quant and a buy side quant? Uh, yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to be curious there. 
So sell side quant, again, it's a person working in banks, uh, buy side quant, it's mostly hedge funds and all kinds of different funds. And obviously since the companies, they have different priorities, they have different businesses, uh, the job itself varies a lot. Uh, sell side quants, obviously they help, first of all, they help traders, they calculate the risks, they calculate the PNL, um, they help trading manage their books correctly. So that's sort of the main uh, responsibility of the sell side quant. Uh, and since traders are in the business of sort of making markets, um, the focus is to find an edge within that. So to be able to find an edge to try to make more deals, try to increase volume, uh, and try to make the hedging process as easy, as cheap as it can possibly be. Uh, buy side side of things, obviously they are in the sort of capital allocation business. So they're trying to find an edge within markets. They're trying to invest in better, um, better deals, better products, better strategies. So there you're working more on, again, back testing things, essentially researching. Uh, so that's the area where like statistics probability that comes really handy. Um, so, yeah. Okay. Now do, um, do a lot, uh, you know, obviously you would know better than me. That's why I'm asking. I just hear rumors and stuff, but they say like a lot mm -hmm. of sell side quants go to work, uh, for buy side, or I don't know if the buy side recruits from sell side. Is that, is that true? There's, is there truth to that? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I'd say there's, yeah, there's a bit of truth in that. Um, it's at least in my experience, I found, and from talking to other people, I found that it's very difficult to get into a hedge fund as a one sort of straight out, fresh out of uni. I mean, obviously mm -hmm. there are some hedge funds that do that, yeah. um, but usually after doing a couple of years on the sell side, you can then, you, you can, you, there's much more you can offer to hedge funds, right? You can say that you've worked on these things, you know the markets well, um, you have some experience and obviously hedge funds like that much better. Um, quite, quite many of my ex-colleagues have moved into hedge funds after that. Okay. So it's a common, it's a common, it's a common path. Yeah. I'd say. Okay. Uh, right. Either that or move into trading. Yeah. Okay. All right. Excellent. What, um, you know, cause most of our listeners are retail traders, if I probably mean all of them. Um, what, what, so what unique perspective do you think you have working in the industry, uh, that would be beneficial to a retail trader? Uh, good, good question. <laughs> um, I'd probably say that the biggest one I, I am struggling to answer this a bit because that's all right. We could come back. We I'm could come not back sure. To I'm not sure there's a significant. Well, I mean, yeah, it it really depends where you are. Like obviously, if you're working as an institutional trader, then you do you do you know the markets, you know how things move, um, you know sort of the flow, the customers, the business, that side of things. Um, and also, once you move into retail trading, then you can take that information and you know use it to your advantage. Uh, because you know, again, you know the demand, you know how to analyze. Yeah. I think the biggest, in my opinion, the biggest advantage from working for an institution is the experience. Because uh, you work with people, with other traders, with other quants. Um, and it's much, much, much easier to learn. Many, many things that people learn on the desk, they're not written in books, unfortunately. Yeah. And it's not something that you can read or learn by reading. Like it's, it's, it's an experience. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so I guess, <clears throat> sorry. Um, so I guess that's that's the that's the main thing, um, the main benefit from working in, you know, in an institution. Um, on my side, of, but again, that's taking the trading side of things. Uh, on the quant side of things, uh, it's slightly different because you don't get as much exposure to the trading desk and to the strategies sure. as as you do if you're a trader. Sure. Uh, you really have to sort of push yourself and uh, really show more initiative to actually speak with traders and ask them to explain various things. Um, than you would have to do if you actually were part of the team. Yeah, so it's, yeah. it's that exposure is a bit limited if you're a quant. Okay, okay, makes sense. Now, 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 how how how's your interest been in uh, the you know through your career and like till now with with actual trading um, yourself? Have you always traded your own account? Was that something you're allowed to do? Um, so I really wanted to like at two parts, well, and two two periods of my career. I really wanted to move into trading. So it was certainly something that's been on my mind. And despite all my efforts, I've never actually managed to make the break. I was very close multiple times, um, but in the end still didn't, didn't make it. Um, so, so that's that. <laughs> uh, and then for my, so all the trading I do is for my personal accounts. Um, luckily Goldman was uh, very flexible in terms of the th things you can trade uh, out of personal. Obviously there's a lot of compliance. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's still very limited. 
but they had a list of, for example, stocks, or sorry, not, not stocks, single stocks out of the question, uh, a list of products like indices, like oh. S&P 500, for example, uh, that you can trade without asking for uh, compliance to approval, yeah, yeah. Uh, which, which is really great. So you can run a few limited strategies uh, based on that, which, oh, which is what I did. Okay. Right now, right now it's a bit more limited. Like I have stopped uh, any of my strategies right now uh, because since I quit, uh, currently I'm trying to this YouTube and Twitter thing and my family and I were basically leaving off our savings at the moment. Uh, and while I do that, I don't, I don't want to take any extra risk coming from the, from the market exposure. Uh, so I've, I've wrapped up all my uh, option strategies for now, yeah. which, is, which is quite ironic because after having quit the full-time job, I'm free to trade whatever I want. Exactly. Um, you don't have seven, seven compliance officers to. Yes, exactly. So whatever strategy, uh, whatever ETF, just go for it. And you yeah. want to buy GME, just you know, to do it. Uh, but, um, well, it sounds like, it sounds like the prudent thing that you're doing though, right now. It is. I cannot wait to get back into it. So once I have some clarity mm-hmm. in terms of where I'm going with this YouTube and, uh, and Twitter, yeah. um, I'll, I'll, I cannot wait to get back to this. Excellent. Excellent. Is, is there any, uh, you know, we, we don't got to dive into like the nitty gritty of it, but any yeah. just um, over yeah. <laughs> overview on the type of strategies that you like to in, implement and what markets you would, you would trade? Yeah, of, of course, of course. Um, so mostly options. So in terms of single names, I'm not that big of a fan of like scanning a lot of different stocks and then, you know, fact, doing some factor analysis. Like it's, it's fun, but I always found it a bit complicated to do because then you have to get the fundamental data the you know price to book ratios and so on and then it's not it wasn't at least to me it wasn't as exciting as doing some back testing on option strategies and one of the things i could trade was the s&p 500 and my main strategy is a result sorry revolved around selling volatility on s&p 500 so i have a few dynamic strategies related to uh, again short volatility and then how you manage that in different market scenarios so that was my main thing Okay. All right. Excellent. Um, apart from that, also I wanted to, um, I briefly traded a few relative value strategies uh, where you can again look at the volatility of S&P index and then you, if the euro stocks, for example, and if there is some dislocation between the two, um, then you can take advantage of that. All right. All right. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm undergoing, I, uh, I just trade equities at the moment, but I'm undergoing learning options. Um, and so it's, 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 yeah. it's exciting. I, I'm like, I'm like, man, I should have done this earlier. I, I think, but uh, I knew you would take to that like a fish to water. Uh, yeah, I, well, I see a lot of I see a lot of you know correlations to um yeah. you know, with the first one I'm learning from. He's kind of like using a lot of corollaries for to like bet like sports betting, which I'm familiar with, and so it makes, mm. you know it's it makes a lot of sense. Um, at least from that, I'm excited excited diving into it. Yeah, um, it's certainly very interesting, very yeah. very risky, but quite quite interesting. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot. There's there's a lot of different pieces that go into it, um, or at least it seems like that at first. I don't know if it's just because I'm new to it, but um, it's it seems just a little bit Once, more depth, maybe a little bit more depth to it. Maybe is the word. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once you get your head around it, like it becomes quite simple. Like it's very logical. Yeah, perfect. Like I think it's for me at least. I think it's much more difficult to trace the relationship in terms of like macroeconomic factors of how I don't know supply chain constraints yeah you know have an impact on whatever like i think in that relationship is much more difficult with options it's very clear it's very logical like you can think through the impacts right which which is very appealing to me which is very appealing because like you said like Mm -hmm. a lot of times trying to connect all the moving pieces is uh you know perhaps impossible i guess right like it's like you know no one can really predict the market but um your your thread your, your thread you had on the the jp morgan options uh, trade, uh, made it to zero hedge, uh, on Twitter. That, that's, yes, that, yeah, that's yeah. a big accomplishment, man. Congrats, <laughs> by the way. <laughs> Thank you. That's, Thank you. That was a big surprise. Yeah, that's, that was really cool. Um, it, it was, so you t- it was titled, uh, the big trade under the surface. I, I know it was a relatively long thread, but do you think maybe mm-hmm. you could summarize it, uh, for the listeners? And if you guys are curious, please go to his Twitter. He'll, 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 uh, he'll mention that at the end of the podcast, but yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Um, the trade is quite interesting uh, because, first of all, because of the size, and at least to me, it's interesting because it's visible. Like it's not uh, it's not an OTC trade. Like anyone can go and check out the open interest on these options, yeah, and see that trade. Like it's not it's not hidden, um, which I think is very incredible. Um, the other thing is that it's an options trade, which means that there are certain implications 
resulting from the trade. Like there are certain um, things that you can derive based on that trade alone. Um, this trade, of course, it's not the only force in the market. Market is a sort of complicated thing. So none of the conclusions that come from this trade are guaranteed. It's just that you can come up with a certain forces that result from this trade. But these forces, again, they have to be taken into context with other market forces and mm -hmm. in different times, different forces can dominate. Mm -hmm. um, so unfortunately, it's not an exact science, but there are certainly very interesting uh, implications from this. Yeah. The um, okay, so I guess the follow up question this is one of the listener questions too. They say, uh, so the, the, the JP Morgan collar trade doesn't every major financial institution do this, or is this something similar or something similar to protect clients? And if not, um, oh, wait, no, I guess, yeah, yeah, that's the first part of the question. Sorry, yeah, I mean, many, uh, many funds do that, many investors do that, uh, in sort of different shapes or forms. Because the strategy, if you break it down, it's a quite simple strategy. And it consists of, first of all, selling a call, which is a covered call is a very popular strategy, the call overwriting. Uh, again, many, many, many funds do that. Many pension funds do that. Um, so that's one side of the strategy. And the other one is long put, which is basically buying protection. Of course, they do a put spread instead of just a naked put. Uh, but either way, that's basically buying protection from the market. Yeah. And that's, again, that's something that's a lot like a lot of the whole market is doing. Everyone wants protection. Everyone needs protection. People are buying puts. Um, but then the protection itself is very expensive. So one way you can make it a bit cheaper is to sell some of the upside. Um, yeah. Especially if you think that the upside is limited, maybe you can, you can cap it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you sacrifice some of the the upside. So, 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 what's what's the danger of of this this trade here? For I guess like like the broader implications um, of the market. Is there anything that's uh, you know that could go wrong here? Um, I wouldn't specifically say it as a danger, because so far the forces that come from this trade or the flows that are a result of this trade, yeah, um, they are more stabilizing for the market than volatile. Okay. Uh, so, for instance, if we look at the call option, the JP Morgan is short the call option. The dealers are long the call option, uh, which means that they have to, in order to delta hedge, they have to buy into the weakness and sell on strength, uh, which basically just means that they uh, stabilize the market a bit. If the market rallies, they sell. If the market falls, they buy it back. Um, so these falls, they work against what the market is doing. Oh, okay. okay. So that's, yeah, the, that reduces the volatility. In the old days, that'd be called running a box. I used to yes, do it in yeah, stocks on stock trading yeah. all the time, especially when I need to stabilize a market. I just box it up, put a million on the bid, million on the offer, <laughs> bang around between the two. Yeah, <laughs> nice. So that so the delta hedging is resulting in these flows as well. Cool. Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. so that's that's the call side. Um, the interesting bit is that um, there is also the put side, uh, which is it works slightly in a different way. Uh, because if you look just at the, uh, I don't want to make it a bit more complex, but if you look at the gamma, which is the changes in delta with respect to the underlying price, mm -hmm. then gamma is destabilizing for the put. So that it forces the dealers to sell if the market is falling and buy when the market rises. But, but there's a big but. And that but is that when the market falls, volatility rises and gamma becomes less important. Hence the fact that the dealers need to, they, the fact that they add to volatility because of this uh, gamma becomes less important because the volatility is high. And that's where other forces uh, come into play, uh, specifically Vana, which I'm happy to explain as well. Yeah, 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 for sure. Please yeah. do, please, please. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so in short, it, it, it also acts as a stabilizer for the market. Uh, so again, a, a bit of disclaimer, these forces, they're still going against whatever is currently happening in the market. Uh, like even if dealers, for example, are forced to buy 5 billion of S&P because of the Delta hedging, it does not mean that the market cannot fall one, two, 5%. Like uh, if there's some big macroeconomic implications or fundamental reasons, uh, then it really doesn't matter what the, the option market makers are doing because the market is going to do its own thing anyway. Order flow. Uh, for example, like in the end of February, 2020, March, 2020, like if there was a big shock to the market, it, Gamma Vana becomes completely relevant. The market is selling off because you know the economy is shutting down, the whole world is shutting down. It doesn't matter what what Vana is. That's bid off. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Bid off. Everything changes when it's bid off, baby. Yeah. Um, 
but when things are more or less relatively quiet right now, mm. uh, these forces can have a bit more meaningful impact. Um, and the deal with puts, which is which is, I, I find it quite fascinating, is that when the market falls, volatility rises. Generally, the market is long puts, and especially right now with this queue is very steep. So everyone's loaded up on puts, everyone's uncertain, they're uncertain uh-huh. about Fed tapering and uh, supply chain issues in China, economy going uh, slower. So a lot of things going on, everyone's really concerned, people bought puts. If for whatever reason the market goes down, the dealers who are short these puts, again, they need to delta hedge. If these puts come become in the money and the market went down, usually volatility rises. Because of the rise of volatility, the deltas will, um, let me get it right. The deltas will become lower for these already in the money, newly in the money puts. And as a result, the dealers will need to buy back some of their hedges. So this usually means that we don't necessarily, we shouldn't see big, um, big market crashes, but we should see something more of a corrections where the index goes down and then it, because of this really, really big delta hedging flows, it snaps back up uh, quite, quite uh, rapidly. And again, we've seen that in March 2020, we've seen that in the end of uh, 2018, and then a big massive rally, it was a sell-off in December 2018, and then followed by a big massive rally in January uh, 2019. So you do see these kind of dynamics, uh, which can be explained by this, 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 this Vana, uh, well, Vana dynamics, Vana flows. Yeah, yeah, no, excellent. I would pre- appreciate you sharing that. And I think that's why people are, you, you know, your, your Twitter page, your YouTube page, you're gaining a lot of traction. Because um, this type of information is is valuable. I mean, and no one else really, you know, and I saw someone was tweeting at you too, like someone in, in the industry, he was he was saying to have like, like, it took him years to or like, even when he was working <laughs> on the desk, no one wanted to tell him these things. Um, and so like, this type of information is very valuable um, for us. And now, I completely agree. And it's incredible how this information is now on Twitter. Like, again, it's not like I haven't come up with this myself, obviously. Uh, I think in this case, with this Twitter thread, I'm sort of standing on the shoulders of giants. I'm building on what other people have already tweeted, what they already um, showed and shared. Uh, And and yeah, it's incredible how Twitter is full of these very useful, incredibly interesting uh, threads and people sharing and discussing these things. Um, Yeah, it's incredible to sort of be part of that as well. Yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah, no, no. I know, I know, I know. Twitter can be, or any anywhere online can be toxic at times. But it, <laughs> Twitter is also a really great resource. Um, you know, you following Definitely. the right people, connecting with people. It's yeah, it's awesome. The, feed, the feedback loops on the internet are quite quite strong. If you're wrong, you will know straight away. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, indeed, will, indeed, yeah. indeed. All right, so we so we got some uh, listener questions here as well. I, I think some of them I've touched on already. I guess the fir- first one's here about gamma. Um, I'm hearing a lot about uh, GEX, gamma exposure. What is this in layman's terms and how much does it typically move markets? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's what we did. We briefly, briefly touched on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so gamma is basically when um, it's a fancy way of saying how much your delta will change as the underlying index moves around. Uh, because the changes in delta is what triggers market makers and, de- and dealers mm-hmm. to re-hedge their books. So if the delta doesn't change, then there is no flows coming from, from the dealers and they don't move the market or they don't in, influence the markets. Uh, gamma is sort of a big one because it impacts the delta quite a lot, especially if we are in relatively low vol environment, if the options are short dated and there is, there is a big open interest on certain strikes. Um, and if we are somewhere close to those strikes as well. So in that sense, gamma will change the delta. And if delta changes, then dealers will need to buy or sell uh, the market. Now, the interesting thing about that is that you can calculate for any given option, you can calculate both the gamma and the delta. And if you can calculate those and you know the open interest, you can calculate how much exposure results from that single option. And what's even more interesting is, again, based on a few assumptions, um, but if you know what's the exposure of the dealers, if you know how much the dealers are short or long a certain option, uh, you can then say they're short or long gamma. And usually, for example, with, these, uh, with this uh, JP Morgan trade, if we take a look at this call option, which uh, the JP Morgan has sold, the dealers are long. This means that the dealers are essentially long gamma, which means that if the market falls, they have to buy it. If the market rises, they'll sell it. So they're acting like as a, they're reducing volatility, basically. 
Um, so that's what long gamma means in this case. Okay, awesome. All right, next one we got here. Um, how important is it for retail options traders to understand the complex math behind the concepts such as price modeling, uh, you know, you know, uh, IG Black Souls, second order Greeks, et cetera? It's a, <clears throat> obviously an interesting question. Um, <laughs> in other words should i bother <laughs> going into this black shows is it worth it it's a lot of maths and complicated and i don't feel like it um i mean like many other things it certainly helps like i, I cannot say that it's absolutely vital um because uh, if you have sort of the intuition how things work like how implied volatility changes the price how different you know dynamics impact the option price um if because as a trader, as an options trader, that's a, like one of the absolute must things you have to have a feel for. If market falls like 2%, what's your delta impact? What's your you know, Vega impact? What's your PL impact? So you need to be able to somewhat decompose these things. Knowing the Black-Scholes formulas and the, you know, the reasoning behind them helps. It's not necessary. Again, you can sort of, you know, uh, there are many tools that will help you. Uh, with that, like you don't have to really go into the you know math details yourself and program a black scholes price, or it's not necessary. Um, but again, if you have a, you know some spare minutes, if it's a free weekend and there isn't much else to do and it's raining outside, uh, <laughs> it, it'll certainly help uh, with understanding. Yeah, it right, makes sense. All right, so back uh, back to the whole uh, GEX thing. How options influence the entire markets? Is this a relatively new phenomenon, or has it nearly? always been present, but not many people knew about it. it uh, is it becoming more increasingly more influential in markets and does it provide any future systematic risk to the markets? Uh, so in terms of the recency, um, and again, I've, from the people that I've, they have been in the markets for a long time, obviously I'm myself, I found out about this fairly recently. Like, so it's a very, I've been working with options for a long time, but again, think, thinking about Gamma or Vana, in that sense, has been something recent because of the very big increase in the options volume lately. Mm-hmm. Like again, options have been becoming like the dynamics. All of that has been the same. Like nothing has changed about gamma or vana. Like that's that's how what options are. That's how they work anyway, and that's how they worked last decade, two decades ago, and so on. It's just that over time, over the last ten years, the volumes have been increasing year over year over year over year. More people start trading options and. Um, I still find it really fascinating how I can trade options. So people can trade options from their phone. I mean, it's one thing where you can trade stocks, but it's another mm-hmm. thing we can now trade these more or less complex products where you need to you know, have a scenario chart and look at all the different things. And you can do it from your phone. Like it's, it's incredible. And obviously the options volume have been increasing. And because of that, the hedging, the hedging flows from these options volumes are having much more impact than they used to have before. And hence, people noticed that they started talking about it a bit more, and it, it's really gained traction over the last couple of years. Uh, there was many people, on, again on Twitter as well, uh, who provide services into this, like they provide visibility into how much gamma is there in the market, how much Vega. Um, so that thing is more recent because of the size of the options market right now. Yeah, yeah, no, it's really it is it is interesting. Um, all right, next question: uh, What's the ideal time frame for options? Uh, expiry that can be invested in if you're day trading versus taking two to three day swing trades? Well, first of all, with options, I mean, regardless of what you sort of what your trading strategy is, um, the most liquidity the options have are on the short end of the curve. So again, if you're looking at two years out for S&P, even for S&P, which is a very liquid market, uh, like it's extremely difficult to get a fill on the near the mid price uh, oh, because the okay. options the options are very like especially if you're doing some complex like four leg strategy it, it it becomes extremely difficult because it's liquid um i mean and, and for many other reasons as well like even if you want to just you know buy a put and protect your portfolio over the next two years well if the index rallies over the next two years your put is going to be extremely out of the money and it's not going to do provide you with much protection um so that's why most of the liquidity, most of the action is happening on you know near term, sort of all the way to three, four months options. Um, so I think I think it was the second part of the question in terms of if you're day trading or if uh, yeah, two to three day swing nice trade. trade, yeah. I mean, it really depends on your strategy. I'd say 
But again, if you're swing trading or day trading, it's very likely doing that with options where there's a lot of liquidity, which means that usually it's the front months, the second months. It's you're not going to day trade or swing trade or go in and out with you know uh, two year options. Yeah. All right. Um, uh, this next question would be as to how the dealer or market makers look at huge volume and open interest in December 17th AM SPX call and puts and sooner later it will be unwound. So the question is how much the dealers look into the open interest. Yes. Yes. At a huge volume and open interest. Yeah. Um, so, well, the dealers, if it depends sort of how much of that is the dealer's exposure, sure. uh, in a sense that, for example, if we're looking at put options, uh, usually the dealers are short put options because people buy them for protection. So it's fair to say that that open interest is probably the dealers being, um, having sold those put options. Okay. If the sure. open, if the open interest is significant. So for example, right now, uh, on for November, I think last time I checked, there was about two. Um, 20,000 more contracts for puts than for calls uh, on the 4,000 SPX strike. Uh, um, those need to be delta hedged. So the implications are that there is a lot of gamma sitting on that on that strike. Oh. Uh, and if we get close to that, then you will need to think, and if the volatility is sort of relatively, if it doesn't spike, if we fall to 4, 4, 4K, um, they need to sort of, you can measure how much gamma is there, how much delta will change, and then you can check how much what the dealers will trade based on that. Mm -hmm. All right, next question. Uh, can you explain the trade execution process at Goldman Sachs from the portfolio manager or firm's idea for a trade to how it gets assigned to you uh, to create an algorithm uh, and then execution of such algorithm? Um, so it's something a bit different. Uh, it's certainly not something that uh, my desk was doing. Um, so I'm not really sure, like in terms of, um, I mean, it, it really it really depends because uh, the trade ideas or systematic trade ideas, they come from different people. I mean, most of that it's internal Goldman's research, internal banks research. Um, and then again, if there's demand, obviously they speak to clients. If there's demand for a certain trade idea, then they will implement it and mm. they will sort of make it live and so on. Um, but it's it's a slightly different desk that was doing that. Uh, so I'm not really sure exactly on the process of uh, trade idea origination and then to the develop the delivery. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Do All they right. have a, uh, do they have, say, uh, does every portfolio team have an assigned analyst like yourself or? Um, does that how it works there or? It's usually per desks. So the, okay. the big trading floor, they're split into different, again, uh, asset classes. And then Got within it. the asset class, you can have uh, different sort of smaller pockets of expertise. Got it. Uh, and yeah, usually there's every, every desk has a certain number of quants that support that desk. Cool. And the size, the size of that, again, depends on the team, depends on the desk, depends on, uh, mm -hmm. on the cost cutting pressures of the, of the management. So it's... So, All right. but, but usually from anywhere from two to five quants. All right. And the uh, so last question here is um, percentage. It's, it's asking, um, you know, I guess it would be obviously like an estimate, but, you know, at, Gold, at big investment bank firms like Goldman Sachs, um, what percent are being, trades are being executed via like algorithms or high frequency trading versus the trader executing the trade himself? Again, that completely depends on the product. Uh, obviously, if you're talking about Delta One stocks, uh, futures, then it's much, much easier to do the algorithm or do it algorithmically. Um, whereas, again, if it's something a bit more complex, uh, a, lot of, a lot of stuff in fixed income, for example, they tend to be a bit more manual. Um, exotic products, they're manual as well. Uh, where, again, the trading, the sales structure, the deal, and then you know, it's booked and the trader has to uh, do all the other hedging activities. Um, it's increasingly more, like as we discussed at the beginning, uh, the desks try to automate as much as possible as they can. Um, but then again, that completely depends on the complexity of the product they're working with. Yeah. All right. And this, the last listener question, and then I got, then I got one too, because it's this, mm. you got me thinking about something because it was, um, I guess it kind of pertained to one of your videos, which I didn't watch. I didn't get to this one, but the, you, you had one talking about GameStop. 
um, and that yeah, whole, yeah, yeah. that whole situation. And I want to ask you a little bit about it, but, um, sure, the, sure. this last question is, um, uh, large banking firms, do they care about or think about retail traders and where they might be parking themselves in trades? I think it, right now it's becoming more and more and more, and more increasingly <laughs> important. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, that's what I want to ask. So like, is that, is that something that's like, maybe it's a, it's a new thing now. Maybe we, you know, we've seen what happened with GameStop and stuff and, uh, and maybe you could just speak to that in like the video and, or, you know, just a little bit, mm -hmm. what your thoughts were on that. It's, it's certainly a, a something that's a, a recent trend. Uh, like again, when I started uh, working, like that was like back in 2017, uh, retail trader was not, considered to be this very important person or very important, you know, market player. Um, I think the GameStop story has completely shown the power of the retail trading because they can cooperate together yeah. and move the markets that way. Yeah. Because everyone individually is not, is not a big person, right? It's yeah. not a, a big sort of, there's, there's not enough uh, gunpowder to, to really make an impact. Yeah. But again, if everybody piles in on the same thing, then it's inevitably will move the market. And right now, the technology with Robinhood, um, which is also a relatively recent broker, uh, but with people doing that and buying their stocks again on their phones, it's, it's much more volume is now coming from retail. And people want to be part of that. People want to participate in the markets as well. Um, and hence, the banks also have to consider that, that flow as part of their analysis. Yeah, yeah. Especially, especially, especially if there are painful lessons of not considering this flow as part of your analysis. Very yeah, true. Yeah. It's crazy. These kids, these kids are like like sitting on the toilet, like going long AMC, <laughs> <laughs> like right off their phone. You know what I mean? Like yeah, pretty, pretty much. Uh, yeah. Uh, hey, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I've I've moved blocks from the same position, so you know, can't yeah. hate. Uh, it's incredible uh, that you can do that. Again, you can sit on your toilet and you know trade the markets real time. It's it's, it's fascinating, it, it, isn't it? It's just fascinating. Yeah, no, it's it's funny because because I think I think on the you know you're talking about how um you know maybe the retail traders need to be like, you know, or at least like the group need to be uh, paid attention to now. And it's like, you know, think about like in your days, JJ, like that was like to you guys. feasted. That's what you guys feasted on. It was like lunch. <laughs> yeah. Right. But I mean, that's the, you know, it's, it's, I'm really cool. I'm really happy that, that retail, um, you know, as long, you know, people are still going to lose money, but at least people have the, the best shot they have now. They have asked access to education, they have access to technology, right? Back in the days, you'd have to call your broker, put in a trade. He calls me. I do the trade. I give him the fill. Then it goes back to the broker. You're waiting for the fill. By the time the markets move two bucks and you get slipped at least 80 cents, right? And then, you know, I got to pay the market maker. So everyone's feeding off of the guy, right? This way it's, you know, and now commissionless trades. My God, back in the day, I mean, nobody would do business for less than a kosher eighth. That was before I started. And I started and then it, you know, it was a 32nd, but yeah, it's, it's great though. I love to see it because I love the liquidity, you know, yeah. the liquidity yeah, it's, it's is beautiful, incredible. right. It's just amazing. I mean, you have stocks that are no name stocks trading $5 billion worth of dollar volume every day. You know, they're like Olympic sized swimming pools of liquidity out there <laughs> and under $5 stock. It's just insane. You know? And uh, the order flow now, thanks thanks to algorithms, because a lot of old traders don't like quants and algorithms. And I am the opposite. I love you guys. I don't know what the hell you do, but it makes for a beautiful orderly market. And my levels work to the penny. And, you know, the stuff stops right on a penny because, you know, algos, you know, they don't get emotional. They stop where they're supposed to, um, you know, and it's just amazing. And I'm sure the brokerage firms are, happier and happier because, you know, you don't have to bail an algo out of jail at three in the morning, like a regular desk trader. And, you know, it's a lot cheaper, like the legal fees are less, uh, you know, and they don't have to go to rehab. Um, so yeah, you know, I, I'm all for it. Bring it on. I love the technology. Yeah. It's, it's, it's certainly pretty, uh, pretty incredible. I, I still like, again, back in university, I, my bank was offering um, share dealing uh, okay. services. And I remember asking them, like, so how much does it cost? And the commission was 10 pounds, the British, 10 British pounds. Yeah, yeah. For one trade. And obviously, yeah. when you're a student, that's like your two weeks worth of living. living exactly. You're not, not going to do much trading with that. But my, right now, and my ticket charge was $25. I wouldn't do it. Yeah, I wouldn't get out of bed for less than 4% of the dollar volume of the trade. You know? 
Yeah. Well, well, now now you don't have to, JJ. I know. (laughs) Right off your phone, out of bed. (laughs) Out of bed, right? Trading in bed. And for free as well, uh, which is, which is again, yeah, very amazing. Amazing. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, What else? I had something else. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Sergey, I guess last thing, I'll let you get going. Um, When you're working at Goldman, what, what, was there any conversations, whether it was, you know, uh, between you and maybe higher ups or you and just other, you know, coworkers um, on crypto, uh, any conversations around that? Um, really sorry. I don't have a, have a good, exciting answer for that. Uh, pretty much. No. I mean, yeah. between colleagues. Yeah. I mean, there was, um, there were a few who were like doing crypto on their own sort of personal, uh, account based you know they, were, they, were, they had an interest in bitcoin for example mm-hmm. um so obviously you can ask them and bounce a few questions you know they help you explain and help you understand what, what's going on with crypto and how it works uh, but i mean you can have the same conversations with anyone sort of from outside of goldman like there was not yeah. anything related to goldman's initiative around bitcoin yeah yeah i, or, I was, or I was... any other crypto for that matter yeah, I was just curious. I was just yeah, I was just curious, kind of maybe if there was like a I don't know, you know, stigma or like a perception, you know, within uh, Goldman. Um, not 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 really. Yeah, yeah. Okay. All right. All right. Neat. Cool. Cool. All right. And I guess with that, that'll conclude today's episode of Confessions of a Market Maker. If you guys enjoyed today's episode, please rate and review it for us. If you'd like to join a fun professional group of traders, you can join JJ and I at Micro E Futures dot com sergey uh tell the listeners where they can find you and anything else you'd like them to know <laughs> thank you thank you thank you very much for watching the or listening to the podcast um i am available on youtube and twitter uh so if you have any questions obviously you can uh, get in touch uh, there is an email on, on the youtube account and my dms and twitter are open as well um so it might take me a couple of days to get to get back to you um but uh i really hope i can uh, answer your questions so feel free to reach out yeah, yeah, go fo- go follow his stuff. It's real informative, uh, very detailed. Uh, JJ, parting words. Thank you so much for joining us and shedding some light uh, onto the other side of things and into the new world of trading. Really, really appreciate it. And yeah, definitely uh, follow this gentleman. Uh, you know, and uh, look at this stuff. I always bug the gamma guys. You know, and it's uh, but it's really great to have you on here to explain it. And, and make it, um, you know, it's like the guy said, Jeremy Iron said in the movie, explain it to me like I'm a golden retriever, right? <laughs> and uh, no, it was great. It's really, really good. It's, it's because it's, it's nice being able to put these pictures together that, you know, you hear a lot of esoteric talk and things like that. It's nice when somebody comes along and actually explains it. Thank yeah. you so much. Thank you. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure being here. Thank you very much. All right. Excellent. And I, I second what JJ said. Appreciate you, Sergey. Thank you so much. So, for Sergey, I'm Polly Walnuts. He's the gorilla of House Street. You stop so.